Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about contraction types, eccentric, concentric, isometric, all the three big contraction types, what it breaks down to, when we should be thinking about doing it, what is it actually doing, where should we use it, all sorts of stuff we're going to go through in terms of the principles of this. And one of the things that I think would be really important to go through this, obviously, is the module. So if you're not a member, get on the website, get yourself a membership, go through the module. I have the graphics in there. I have all the pictures and a description of that, plus the written word behind it, which I think helps in terms of learning. Case studies that go with it. So we'll go through a case study of an NFL athlete that I'm actually trying to create a concentric outfit output with, and I'll go through why. And then the next one would be getting the book, Strength Deficit. This is coming out, pre-order here soon through the website as well as Amazon. All these things are going to really help with learning and understanding what all this stuff really means. So hopefully it's just like not coming off as this abstract painting, but this really cool way to learn and grow and immerse yourself in certain subjects and context. And if you can think about it anyway, think about it as models. Think about it as I can build myself into the coach that I want to be by having a lot of different contexts of models and frameworks to apply when I feel appropriate and leveraging the ones that are most meaningful for you and your environment. So I hope this is helping. I hope you guys are enjoying. Thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you guys on the other side. So for those who don't know, I have a book coming out titled Strength Deficit, which is going to go through how to leverage eccentric versus concentric contractions. And, and I wanted to use this module as an opportunity to kind of springboard into that conversation about a very deliberate framework to really focus on one end of the spectrum versus the other. But I also want to get a broad overview off of all the contraction types. So obviously eccentric, eccentric, and then the other one being isometric. And what is it? How do we utilize it? And what should we be thinking about it from a, a physiological perspective, right? What happens when we lengthen the sarcomere? What happens when we shorten the sarcomere? And what happens when we try to create force without any change in length? And what is the things that we should be thinking about? So just broad strokes, just so we're all on the same page. We want to think about this as a fractal relationship, thinking from the granular level of what is an eccentric contraction. It's just take, essentially taking the sarcomere or that Z disc, the end work of that sarcomere, and trying to elongate it, right? So as we start to elongate that tissue, you know, either the parallel elastic component, which is that that connected tissue that directly surrounds the actual muscle fiber or the series elastic component, which is the muscle, which is connective tissue literally on the ends of the muscle fiber, connecting muscle fiber to the actual tendon ligament, and then subsequently the bone, we can see this dynamic interplay between that. And the stronger that eccentric unit is, the more efficient we are utilizing either, either utilizing the series elastic component and then subsequently the passive properties of tendon ligament and then creating a more robust stretch shortening cycle. Uh, but aside from the physiology, we want to look at this of, okay, that elongating, thinking about this from a motor learning perspective. If you ever worked with young children before, they're organically stronger eccentrically, right? So we look at that first motor learning developmental path is that eccentric strength that's natural, that we have ingrained into our DNA is paramount to understand how we create movement patterns. And I want to think about this as we start to progress into the practical aspect is understanding how to leverage something like eccentric focus into a training plan, not only just from a physiological perspective, as we talk about strength deficit, but from a motor learning perspective, that this natural reflexive strength 
strength that we have in response to high speeds or increased loads that's stronger in terms of a yielding or lowering kind of capacity is a fundamental aspect. And I also want to talk about, too, with respect to the idea of explaining this to your athlete or client. You know, one of the things that we we get into a lot with our setup and leveraging tempos at a pretty high degree is the grasping of the concept of why eccentric contractions are important and why is it that I'm spending an inordinate amount of time focusing on the lowering versus the just overcoming or the concentric. And I think this is a fundamental aspect when we're trying to break down eccentric training. And I want to just think about it from the level of talking to you, the coach, the practitioner, the person that's really trying to understand this to be able to be better for their client or athlete. It's just simply breaking it down in fractal kind of representation. It's that sarcomere that for whatever reason from a passive property or the actual contractile strength of that sarcomere is resisting length. And the more sarcomeres we can accumulate within that, that, that kind of, that position, that range of motion, that where that load is situated, the stronger we're going to be eccentrically. And one of the things that we will see over time with training eccentric, and this is an important note, is that the delayed onset muscle soreness experience from acute eccentric training is tremendous. It is a very novel stimulus. Directly focused, whether it's time under tension or directly in terms of intensity or speed, increases delayed onset muscle soreness exponentially. But what we see is when we repeat exposure that, so if we get a microcycle with a secondary attempt at the same muscle group with the same eccentric focus, whether it was duration, intensity, or speed, we can see a, del- a diminished response in terms of delayed onset muscle soreness. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot through these modules is the nervous system component in response to a novel stimulus is tremendous, right? That most changes happen on a central nervous system level as opposed to a a muscular or architectural level, right? We're not increasing the size of the muscle cell. We're increasing number of muscle cells, which is not something that we really can say happens. We can increase the number of sarcomeres, but as a whole, we're not creating these these architectural changes of the muscle cell in that short of a period. It takes a little longer, right? We're talking weeks, if not months. So the nervous system is probably the most immediate impact. We just become more efficient, right? So we recruit more motor units. What that does is it utilize more more muscle fibers and and synchronizes those motor units a little bit more efficiently that we are responding to that specific adaptation. Again, this is why understanding principles is so important. Progression, progressive overload, specificity, individuality. All these things have a huge impact on the response to training. And people who are detrained or, or really concentrically focused are going to really respond aggressively in terms of delayed onset muscle soreness in regards to uh, that first stimulus. But what will happen is their nervous system will become more adept and handle that stress a little bit more efficiently, and they'll recover faster from a very similar or a slightly increased stress, whether, again, it comes in the forms of increased duration of time or detention eccentrically, intensity, or actual speed. These are all components we need to think about as we're going through. And one of the things that I want to get back to, again, to explaining this or partake, parlaying this to your client or athlete, is explaining to them that, hey, this is potentially a novel stimulus, that we might not get a really adver- a really like a, a good experience when we walk out of here. You're going to be sore for a couple of days, but this will pass. Your body will adapt. 
you'll build into this more reflexive or as I'm reading through a lot of these um, different different modal learning kind of books, this limbic system in the brain to tap into this more reflexive type of, of motor learning that creates stronger, more resilient, more capable athletes, but also too increases their threshold and their ceiling. So when you're talking to your client saying you're organically stronger here, as you were a baby, you learn to move through space through eccentric strength of the tissues, not the shortening strength, maybe a little bit of isometric strength, so we get to certain positions. So if you look at it from a DNS perspective, is we go from a prone supine, side lying, half kneeling, tall kneeling, almost a more lungy type of position. So if you've ever done a get up, essentially it's just a whole entire motor path for a baby getting from their back to their stomach all the way up to their feet. And then back down, how we transition down, they usually squat, go to a knee down on the ground, and then they plop down, and then they roll back to their side and to their back or their stomach. But it's that initial eccentric and then isometric stabilization is what learned is how we learn to locomote. And then what we can leverage through these very specific patterns that we're going to train redundantly, whether it's a squat, lunge, hinge, push, or pull, is that there's an untapped resource eccentrically that we're trying to capitalize on. That if you've been training for a couple of years now, we see definitively a cap or a ceiling concentrically development-wise. What we're trying to do is raise that ceiling, get into that limbic nervous system, and then going into this idea of we have a lot of potential there left on the table. And that's how I sell this to my clients and athletes is this, is this hey, we're deliberately slowing you down eccentrically. We're trying to raise the intensity through after we start to slow you down. And then we try to raise the speed as we go through that. And we should see this reflect in things like reactive strength index on the counter movement jump. We should see this reflect in the higher jumps. You see this higher reflect in terms of higher peak force or rate of force. It's just, we're just more efficient to be completely frank. Now on the other end, there's the isometric component. And this is a creating force without increasing or decreasing the size of the sarcomere. So we've basically created the static position. And there's two, this is bi-directional. And I think it's sometimes missed a lot with a lot of the talk about isometric is there's a yielding, which means we're lowering, we're trying to resist towards the, towards the direction of gravity, towards the ground. And then there's the overcoming. We're trying to push away from gravity in a certain direction. And a lot of times you need certain objects like a rack or pins to be able to really accentuate high force outputs. But what you'll see again is not much muscle soreness, but a huge ceiling of improve or, or a huge increase of the ceiling improvement from one week to the next. You know, if you've ever done a really direct focus on either a yielding isometric. So for example, you do a deadlift and then you do a three position pause at mid thigh, knee, shin, and you're trying to hold in these yielding positions, that would be an example of a yielding ISO that we're trying to resist gravity in certain positions that have the mechanical advantage or mechanical disadvantage. And we've talked about this with mechanical advantage. It's when the body is in, has either the most muscle attached to it, has the shortest lever, or we're farthest away from perpendicular to gravity, so we're more parallel to gravity, is when we'll have the most mechanical advantage. And you're thinking about this, I'm trying to take away the mechanical advantage, or AKA get to a decreased range of motion, to really challenging that yielding, yielding isometric as opposed to overcoming. Now on the other end, you can look at it from an overcoming perspective. We're trying to utilize that same mechanical disadvantage, but we're trying to push away from the ground. 
it's kind of it's not semantics. I think there's a progression from either eccentric to concentric or concentric to eccentric that we can leverage a more yielding to uh, a overcoming strategy in between. And I don't want to classify isometrics as this is kind of like transitional contraction type. Um, I think oftentimes it does get that note. But I also want to take this note of there are several things that we're doing isometrically. We'll utilize loaded positions in certain ways, right? So if you've ever done a zercher position, we're essentially holding isometrically upper body. If you've ever done a front squat position, we're holding this semi-flexed, internally rotated position of the shoulder. You know, there's a lot of dynamics that we should appreciate when we're doing a isometric position. And a lot of times too, one of the things that I think we should notate when we're doing these, these big movement patterns is lower body is pretty much limited by isometric upper body strength, right? So if we're doing front squats or deadlifts, it's our grip, it's our postural control, it's our ability to control that thorax in space, keeping your ribs down, not letting that rib expand or elevate while we're trying to squat or hinge is what really hope makes the difference between accomplishing the lift or not. And the same thing we see with running mechanics, right? This, you can see it when someone running with their shirt off, this natural eccentric isometric transition to concentric when we're running in space in terms of this front side mechanic, backside mechanic, cross body. We're stabilizing through that thorax and that pelvis and we're trying to control this counter rotation of the lower body, this reciprocal arm action to lower body action as we're trying to locomote. But we're doing this in everything. So isometric strength is a really, really important thing to think about as you're starting to create transitions and progressions and, and overall effectiveness. And, you know, just quite frankly, too, it's this, you know, a really safe way to teach someone how to exert a lot of force is to do it isometrically. And it's safe, very safe. We can create a lot of force safely in certain positions. That's a really good asset to have, right? So if you got a younger athlete, if you got an in-season athlete, if you got someone who's transitioned to preseason and you want to minimize potential risk, do a high force overcoming isometric. You could have very little risk and very high upside. And you hit these high threshold motor units. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns. What you find is the simpler the, the skill or the task, the quicker they adapt and the faster that you need to find a progression. But it still doesn't change the fact that there's a huge asset there, pretty much right there at your disposal, that if you want to tap into these high threshold motor units in a very safe manner while training these motor patterns and developing these positions with mechanical disadvantage, really good opportunity there. And you see this play out a lot in a lot of different areas, weightlifting, you might see a pause snatch, you see pause squats, you might see this in some powerlifting, some different positional stuff and some overcoming stuff. All the being is, you know, we really want to think about in terms of looking at this objectively and saying, all right, well, where does isometric contractions fit in? And sometimes it comes an afterthought. And I think that's a mistake. I really do. And I think it's this, oh, we'll be good to transition from concentric to eccentric or eccentric to concentric. It's... It's not an intermediary step by definition. It's it's a natural progression or regression in some directions, but it's also this really good opportunity to train high threshold motor units safely and train positional positions that were inherently weak and train things that, you know, we might really need to focus on getting more end range control or more I guess regressive angle type of strength. 
And the final one would be concentric, which I think is everyone's very familiar with. It's this overcoming gravity. It's a shortening of a sarcomere. It's bringing that Z disc together as we start to overcome gravity and resistance. But I remiss to say that, you know, concentric strength is the weakest of the three. And one of the things that you learn if you ever read through any Arthur Jones or Mike Metzer or Allington Darden or anyone has ever done high intensity training is this the the real true failure of a muscle fiber is taking it to concentric failure, isometric failure, and then eccentric failure. That's how you truly, truly train to failure. And if you've ever seen this done in practice, you see a a person going to true absolute failure, you see what actual exhaustion looks like. And I think it's a really important lesson to understand. And this is a difference, it's semantic, but there's not semantics, it's it's very context dependent. When we look at it from the dynamic of, okay, if I'm doing machine with the intent to isolate a muscle fiber or muscle group, let's just say quadriceps and terminal knee extension, that I have to, to in order to get the most from that, difference from using compound multi-joint closed kinetic chain movements, which has the fighting of resistance of gravity and trying to balance on two feet, where I'm in a seated position, so I'm very stable, and I'm trying to directly isolate knee extension. I'm trying to overload and create tension in that quadricep. Then understanding what concentric failures limitations are, and then that, from a safety perspective, is different. It's just less. And if you're only going to concentric failure on machine or isolation-based exercises, you're missing a huge opportunity isometrically and eccentrically. Now, one of the things you need to think about with closed, closed kinetic chain compound multi-joint movements is this idea of the risk that's associated with that. So if I'm doing back squats, if I'm doing deadlifts, there's an increased risk than doing a prone leg curl or seated leg extension. These are just, I think hopefully that's intuitive. You know, just more things that can go wrong. There's more joints at play. There's more factors. It becomes more multivariate. There's just more inherent risk with more factors to consider. If all I have to do is flex or extend my knee in a very stable position, and I could teach that effectively to a five-year-old versus a squat, which takes a long time to develop that pattern and get to a point where I can push it to threshold, that the concentric limitations for compound multi-joint movements are more important than it would be for a isolated joint action. That I can safely take something to threshold in isolated joint action past concentric strength than I can with multi-joint movements. Now, hopefully that doesn't sound counterintuitive to understanding the dynamic of, of trying to incorporate eccentric or isometric, whether it's yielding or overcoming, within certain exercise selections. It just is trying to be completely transparent about the inherent shortcomings of a training compound multi-joint movements with the idea that it's going to be concentrically limited based off of safety. Now, with that being said, is we can increase the eccentric strength through direct loading, right? So weight release hooks is a great way to do that. Increasing the speed or amplitude of eccentric lowering. Those are all really good things. We can look at it from the context of increasing time or duration eccentrically, relatively speaking, a concentric. That if I'm going to do a 30-second total time under tension set, and I'm going to do that for, I can do that for 30 reps, which would be, you know, one second down, explosive on the way up, which is going to be a lot of concentric strength and a lot of concentrically limited. So I'm going to have to utilize a very low intensity to accomplish that goal. Think about 30 RM. 
versus if I do 10 reps with a 30XO tempo, now I can increase the load because now I'm utilizing a stronger contraction type to bear majority of the time under tension versus even potentially using a 50XO tempo for six. Now I'm utilizing even more eccentric time. Maybe utilize a overcoming and an eccentric kind of, I mean a yield, a eccentric and a yielding strategy by doing a 3-3XO tempo. So now I'm gonna do a three second lowering, three second pause in the bottom position or the contracted position or the shortened position with an explosive, explosive concentric effort six seconds are going to be allocated to stronger contraction types. I have to do five reps. I can therefore utilize higher intensity and get more bang for my buck. Now, taking it to the other level is potentially I might want to utilize the other end of the spectrum, which increases the concentric demand by going something like a combinating resistance. One of the things that you'll see is when you use chains and bands is actually you're increasing the concentric resistance, not and you're decreasing the eccentric or the isometric resistance, right? It's easiest when you're most, most at your mechanical disadvantage or your lengthened position or you're most at a perpendicular to gravity type position where that primary muscle is trying to be loaded. So what you'll find is, okay, you have to utilize a much lower intensity and you try to push through, and you try to get as close as you can possibly to your concentric RM if you're trying to push that as a max effort or relative strength type of dynamic. But a lot of times it falls into this dynamic effort, which falls into this, okay, now we need to utilize different bar speeds, like a strength speed, speed strength, high velocity type of, type of dynamic, which is a great strategy. But you'll, what I see a lot is instead of utilizing a untapped resource like eccentric and isometric, we try to double down on concentric ability and push in that direction with accommodating resistance or partials, which is, again, a really good strategy to increase the concentric demand. If I get you to a mechanically advantaged position and I have to exert as much force as possible with high, high levels of external resistance, that increases the concentric demand even more so. So we start to push in this direction of either adding accommodating resistance and focusing more on speed, which is still a concentrically oriented type of activity, versus the other end, looking at this from this dynamic of, okay, now I'm starting to incorporate a reduced range of motion so I can utilize heavier ex external load and get more concentric demand there. And we'll talk about this a lot in my book, Strength Deficit, but there's a, there's a rhyme and a reason to do that, and there's a rhyme and a reason to not do that. If the goal is concentric output, like if I have an interior alignment or a shot put, then it's a good strategy. Utilize combining resistance and partials. If the goal is to improve the guy's ability in space to run and change direction or jump repeatedly, then it might not be. That we might be better served focusing on eccentric contractions. And we can kind of use the example, which you, know, you get from Charlie Francis and then I think uh, a good friend, uh, Stu McMillan, talked about with long, short, short to long is where's their strength? If their strength is something like squatting, they're going to be more push oriented. They're going to be better off the blocks or better with acceleration. So you want to accentuate that towards the end because it's already good. So work long to short, work rhythm, work timing, work, work top end speed, high velocity type of things or max velocity type of things. And then peak with something what they're already good at. Right, their limiting factor is not coming off the blocks or the first 10 meters. Versus that guy who's really good at pulling an eccentrically oriented exercise, like deadlifting, they're probably good in long durations. Their back end speed is really good. 
And you can think about the archetypes right now, like Ben Johnson versus versus Usain Bolt. Like, who would win in a hundred meter if it was like all things considered equal? Well, I mean, it depends on how good the training program is, really, right? And we look at that from the dynamic of okay, well, Usain Bolt's probably training short to long because his strength is long, and he's probably trying to prioritize improving his ability off the blocks versus Ben Johnson's probably training long to short and trying to improve his back end 60 meters to improve his front side mechanics and his reactivity against the ground and becoming more elastic. Okay, well, that changes what we should be doing in the weight room as well. So if you've ever been to Altus and you see some of the stuff they do, you'll see a lot of their sprinters doing a lot of reflexive type of stuff, a lot of reactionary type of stuff because they're trying to improve that reactivity, which is eccentric, eccentric focus. So I'm trying to prove they're long or they're back 60 meters or their front side mechanics where they're going to be more vertical, have a lot more, a lot less ground contact time, a lot more, a lot more just essentially aerial time or stride length versus, okay, well, if I have a shot putter or someone that needs to be really conceptually strong or someone like Usain Bolt just needs to improve their time, time off the blocks, they just need to be more powerful, express force a little bit more efficiently in that first 10 meters. So they're going to spend more time on the ground. They're going to have to overcome a lot of inertia. They're going to have to improve their concentric strength. So if I'm training short to long, okay, then I want to utilize more concentrically oriented stuff early. And I want to be safe about it. I want to want to cause a point of diminishing returns. So I need to think about it from the level of, okay, what can I do safely with this guy? How can I improve this guy's concentric strength safely? Maybe I utilize a combination resistance reduces the load. Maybe I utilize partials which reduces the range of motion. And thinking out loud in terms of, okay, well, hopefully we're creating a framework to look at contraction types in a way that makes sense, in a way that you're looking at it from the context of, all right, well, if I want, the, if the goal, everything should be goal-oriented. So if the goal is to improve someone's eccentric strength and all I have in my disposal is how to load someone up concentrically and we have metrics to actually evaluate this, and one of the things we'll talk about in strength deficit is the difference between RSI and impulse. Impulse is force irrespective of time, where RSI is essentially how much force you produce respective of time. When spending more time in the plate and less time on the air, you have a low RSI. You're not really efficient eccentrically. If I'm spending a long time on the plate and I produce a lot of force, regardless of how much time I spend in the air, that should report a high impulse. So people with higher body masses, people with increased cross-sectional muscle area, people who are concentrically strong are going to have high impulses. People who are lighter, more efficient, shorter amortization, better stretch reflex are going to have are going to have less time in the plate and more time in the air. So they should be a little bit more RSI oriented versus the big interior lineman or the short or the long to short guy is going to be more impulse oriented. But we should see changes in something that relative to what we're trying to accomplish. You might do a different test, like a penta jump, so five broad jumps in a row. You might do a four jump on a just jump and seeing what their what their jump is relatively speaking to their counter movement or non counter movement jumps. We have a lot of different things we can assess this as. But my point being is, if there's no goal, it just generally falls into let's just load them up concentrically, and because we can quantify that more readily in the weight room, but it's not netting us what we want. And there's a huge untapped resource, both eccentrically and isometrically, that we can tap into. And we start to put our hats on and say, okay, if I want to improve this guy's ability or this athlete's ability, then I have to really start to think, what is the best use of my time here in the off-season or in-season, relatively speaking to the goal? So as we start to break down eccentric, it's lengthening. Isometric is creating force without any lengthening or shortening. Concentric is shortening. 
the goal being, okay, I need to improve this person's ability to overcome. Okay, well, I might need to get that person concentrically strong. I might need to improve this person's ability to yield. I might need to improve this person's eccentric strength. If I need to incorporate something along the lines of get this person positionally stronger, or whether it's a yielding or overcoming type of strategy, I have that in my back pocket as well. I want to leave it with this distribution, which if you've ever read Science and Practice or something with the Pollock Principles, is how do we think about this on more of a macro level? And generally speaking, concentric training is going to be the majority of the stuff that you do. And a large part of that is ties into, I think this, you know, this, I don't think it's a dogma, but this idea that strength is the mother of all qualities, that we, we need to get strong before we can do anything else. And you think about it even from like, if you've ever read Jumping into Plyometrics and Donald Chu's like, you should be able to squat 1.5 times your body weight before you start doing any plyometric progression. You know, I think it's this narrative that like, hey, like there's needs to be a certain level of strength, but I think the way that's quantified is concentric, right? That if I can overcome a certain amount of weight, then I'm ready to do these other tasks and I'm ready to transfer that over. And you can go through some of the other stuff I've talked about with these, you know, this, it's such an easy catch-all term, but like force is mass times acceleration. And we look at power and we look at velocity. There, 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 a lot of it is contingent upon how much force you produce, but there's other components of timing, you know, in terms of if I move my body mass with more force, I should be producing more velocity and more power. But on the other end, if I move in less time, I'm going to definitely have a lot more velocity. And if I think about that, there's a lot of things we can go with that. And if it's only concentric, which is going to only have this outlet of force, we're going to fall into this preconceived notion that concentric oriented training should be the majority of what we do. I struggle with that. Um, I don't think that's the only answer, you know, and I think when we look at other mo other methods, which kind of gets this, uh, I guess, stigmatism attached to it. But I think back about like Gary Gray stuff and looking at different, different tweaks and loading different vectors, it's hard to quantify. So therefore it becomes hard to think about utilized in a training session or a training, training program. You know, but if I look at it from creating a lot of eccentric and isometric forces in a frontal and transverse plane during locomotion, lunging, hinging, squatting, pushing and pulling, well, I think that athlete's probably gonna have a lot more resiliency going forward. And it kind of gets away from this idea of like this arbitrary 60% of your time should be spent towards concentric training, 30% towards eccentric training, and then 10% towards isometric training. That could be completely inverted. That can be completely modified in certain ways. Like if I was going to break down Todd Wright's and Gary Gray's training philosophy, or even something along the lines of, uh, I'm just thinking out loud here, like a, like a Altus type approach or looking at it from, Anything that's not from the football strength conditioning tree, you know, that's going to have a little bit more of like a skepticism attached to it, that their ratios of eccentric, isometric, and concentric are probably different than a traditional football strength conditioning program. And I don't necessarily think it's a, I think, I don't think it's a good thing that we're going to look at this in a skeptical way. I think we're better served to look at those philosophies as, as a mechanism to see potential way to how to leverage some of the eccentric and isometric stuff in a training program as well as frontal frontal transplay 
frontal and transverse plane movements or rotational vector stuff. You know, and when we look at how do we prepare athletes, it's when we start to fall into this, you know, just arbitrary fixed outcome of, well, I got to be concentrically strong, which becomes problematic. And if I look at it from the incorporation of plyometrics, jumps, bounds, hops, tosses and throws on all three planes of motion and all three vectors. If I look at it from strengthening my hinges, my squats, my lunges, in a lot of ways, multiple vectors and multiple positions, right? So, you know, if I think about squat, like, all right, that's going to have pretty much one outlet at all times, right? I'm going to think, all right, I got to load that person up with a back squat and see what they can do concentrically versus get that person holding a mace and have an asymmetrical load or have that person hold a med ball and do a squat to rotational lift. And what is their timing, their rhythm, their coordination, and stuff like that? That the strong people that we see out there, it doesn't transfer to running and locomotion the way we think it does, as organically as it should be. Now, my point of all that is, is I put it in the module that 60%, 30%, 10% between concentric, eccentric, isometric is kind of what you should be thinking about from a... Uh, a more macro perspective. And that could break down into looking at a quadrennial cycle that it, over time it manifests into that ratio from off-season, in-season, from progression, from beginning off-season to the end of off-season. It, it should materialize into, all right, that, that's probably the annual breakdown. But it doesn't mean that in certain blocks or certain mesocycles that we're looking at this on a more context-specific, I'm working a long to short progression, that that ratio might not be 60% concentric. It might be 60% eccentric, 20% yielding isometric, and then whatever the remaining 20% concentric. It could be that, you know, and there's some cool stuff coming out. And I was just talking with some coaches about things like an omni contraction method with Ben Prentice and Christian Thibodeau have been utilizing and utilizing eccentric focus. So it's like a concurrent philosophy, but eccentric focus on one day, concentric focus on another day isometric focus on another day and like point being is just get outside the framework i even talked about the idea of looking at it from a meadows perspective of this like pre-pump hitting high threshold motor units or bigger muscle fibers type 2x and then hitting the the type 2 a and b type of muscle fibers in the post but leveraging concentric eccentric and isometric stuff throughout the training session to create hopefully the similar response and just getting outside of this concentrically oriented stuff. And I think that's a, it's a great framework. It's more of a conjugate method, which you can see the influence from something like Elite FTS and, and Louis Simmons and Westside there. Um, you can see John Meadows' thought process and what he really gravitated to and how he married a, a philosophy like bodybuilding to powerlifting and had really good results, even utilize combinating resistance for hypertrophy output, but it's also, also going to be very concentrically limited and, you know, leveraging these great models and these great frameworks and looking at it from the context of, can I incorporate more eccentric, more isometric stuff here for whether it's yielding or overcoming is my point. And that's going to be a big part of the practical It's going through how do we orient exercises to really allow for that person to get the most changes practically. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. 
Uh, shameless plug here. I definitely think strength deficit is going to give a lot of context to some of the things I was talking about. I think it will help a ton in terms of understanding the physiology, understanding the actual architectural changes, understanding the, the rationale as to, you know, what is actually happening when we do concentrically oriented training versus eccentrically oriented training and what are the mechanisms why we might gravitate to it so that's going to be a really good resource for you and i have all the books and i have all the programs that i utilize at army at the end of that so hopefully that helps so shameless plug strength deficit pre-order here soon um i think that's going to help if this is something that you guys are really interested in with thank you guys see you guys next week for the practical <laughs>